It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and we're recording this episode on Thursday morning, March 26th. Today, we'll be talking about the coronavirus and its ramifications for the internal dynamics of the Jewish community, questions of closures, economic challenges and crises. And for this first segment, we'll be joined by Shira Hano, recently of the Jewish Week and soon a staff writer for JTA, by Hindi Pupko, Deputy Chief Planning Officer at UJA Federation of New York, and by Andres Bacoini, President and CEO of the Jewish Funders Network. Shira, why don't you kick us off? This morning, the total number of unemployed Americans reached 3.2 million people. The coronavirus has impacted every part of the economy, and the nonprofit sector is, of course, not exempt. JCCs, which could be closed for months, are expected to make deep cuts. The Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side has already laid off almost all of its employees. So what do you do as a nonprofit organization when you can't fulfill your organization's mission through a computer screen? Um, And what kind of obligations do the donors hold? as our community finds itself on increasingly shaky financial footing. Given the pressing needs of regular people, Jews and non-Jews, for the basics of food, shelter, and healthcare, do we need to reassess some of our loftier goals to meet the needs of our current moment? So let's start with you, Hindi. I'm sure you're seeing the trends of what's happening inside institutions. Shira, you know, put this out there as a kind of larger ecosystem view, but what are you seeing in particular in the New York Jewish community about the challenges that organizations and institutions are already starting to face? Everything about what's happening is unprecedented. It's not that crises in and of themselves are unprecedented or that financial downturns alone are, but the combination of the two, the fact that we are simultaneously experiencing a public health emergency coupled with a financial one is indeed unprecedented. And as Shira mentioned, we're not only anticipating Um, major layoffs and furloughing of employees in critical Jewish institutions, those have in many cases already taken place. JCCs around our catchment area in the past days have had to lay off or furlough hundreds of employees. We are seeing social service agencies not only struggling for dollars, but more importantly, struggling to meet the needs of the people that they serve every day. Think about seniors who every day have walked into senior centers for food and socialization. Now those senior centers are closed. And more than that, it is not simple to safely involve volunteers in visiting those seniors, seniors who often can't easily log on to FaceTime. Think about women suffering from domestic abuse now stuck in their homes. Think about individuals who used to walk into mental health clinics every single day who can no longer do that. Think about CUNY Hillel students who are being asked to work remotely but do not have access to Wi-Fi or laptops. We are seeing needs in every single sector, from synagogues to social service agencies to critical Jewish identity formation organizations. And we'll get into this later, but we are trying to hold both. 
you know, Shira said, is this a time to sort of rethink some of the other work we do? We can't put that Jewish identity work aside. And we are trying to do both at the same time, meeting the critical needs of folks who rely on our social service sector and helping our Jewish identity and formation organizations go through this moment, pivot in this moment, and saying throughout, we will get past this. And when we're at the other end of it, we will have enormous regrets if we will have let that sector fail. Okay, so I do want to come back to the question of what you might call the survival sector and the identity sector. It's an imperfect division between those things. And I definitely want to come back to the question of what of what we're witnessing today is not, not that it's not COVID-19 specific, but COVID-19 is basically like being thrown on being thrown on dry straw and a whole bunch of stuff that's been percolating around the Jewish ecosystem for a long time. So I want to come back to that. But let me turn to you, uh, Andres, because you're uh, you're watching this from a different vantage point, which is from the perspective of big philanthropy in the Jewish community. And I'm sure you're getting some perspectives on how our funders of either existing institutions or major priorities in the Jewish community witnessing, experiencing this, what kind of drains or strains are being put on them in terms of, in terms of their own capital? What are you seeing? So uh, Jeff and works with both major funders and smaller funders. And there is, there's a big distinction here to be, to be made. There is a difference between the, what funders look and think at the local level and funders that are thinking systemically of the major systems of Jewish life that are in danger. There's the realization among major funders that are four systems that sustain Jewish life in the United States and to a certain degree in Canada that are at risk. One is the JCC system. The other one is the human service system. You know, hundreds of Jewish family services that Hindi was saying are under stress. Camps. Camps are vital for Jewish life for all sorts of reasons. If they can't conduct summer sessions, they uh, will experience a major, major economic problem. And schools, those are the first, you know, first ones. Um, there are many other ecosystems out there that are going to have that. But I think that the, re- that the reaction of funders has been, by and large, very positive and very empathetic. Uh, first funders are saying many of the things that we do we can do differently. So, for example, there's a very robust discussion about is the 5% really Torah from Sinai or can we dig deeper in our endowments in the, in the time of crisis? Uh, the, the way in which we do grant making, you know, all the usual reporting requisites um, are being waived or are being halted. I think that funders try very hard to send a reassuring message to their grantees and telling them, we're here with you, we're, we have your back. Now, you may ask, is that sustainable over time if the crisis is big and if there's a domino effect? So can they really promise that they have their back? And funders are trying to be very collectively minded as opposed to the stereotype that funders are just go it alone and whatever I, I'm participating like virtually every day in different conversations that seek to coordinate responses with federations, with other umbrella organizations, etc. So I think I think that funders are going to respond. I see a very different vibe than the one I saw in 2008. In 2008, the knee-jerk response was okay, we need to hunker down because a crisis comes, so let's cut our contributions. It was a little bit paradoxical. And if you look at that, reflects what happened in philanthropy in general 
in this country when people actually cut contributions during the big uh, recession. The attitude and signal is very different. Is saying, let's band up together and let's see what we can do. So there's a bunch of different pieces that we have to pick up on, one of which is just a technical economic question, which is increasing the draw on endowments right now, which seems quite urgent, is taking place at the same time that those endowments have lost an enormous amount of value. And I, I feel I have to say a little bit of irritation because when you look at like in San Francisco, the endowment fund attached to the federation there is at something like $2.2 billion. And in the good times, it was very hard to get anybody to kind of open up the coffers of that and say, you know what, our community is having some major issues around Jewish identity. These were not emergency existential issues. What would it look like if we moved from 5 to 7% to 11%, you would increase dramatically the amount of capital in the system. And you might, in retrospect, have built a communal infrastructure that was better capable of withstanding a moment like this. Whereas now, because of the market, that endowment is dropped in terms of size, and the pull on the resources is now for essentially emergency services, which are incredibly important. But have, uh, we have effectively created for ourselves a kind of double loss in that process of neither creating the preparedness beforehand to be able to have a stronger communal infrastructure, nor the ability as a result of this to maintain powerful endowments in the long run. So how do we, I mean, how do we even confront that, that kind of economic question? I mean, I can just speak for New York. Over the past few days, we released $21 million from our endowment to enable nonprofits and some small businesses to access interest-free loans through our partners at the Hebrew Free Loan Society. And all I could say, Yuda, is I don't entirely relate to the scenario that you put forth because one of the refrains that, you know, I've heard a lot this week is thank God for our endowment. Like, thank God, you know, we have been responsible in the use of that endowment because right now we are able to access it appropriately. Um, the reason why you don't want to draw down the endowment too much during regular years is because you should be fundraising the money that you need to support Jewish life in a regular year. The endowment should not be used for, quote, regular needs. Raise the money. Make a compelling case. The funders will show up and they'll be there, and that's what we've seen. And we're really thanking God now that we have our endowment to do the $21 million loan funds. And I promise you there will likely be more draws in our endowment precisely for this unanticipated moment. So I don't necessarily relate to the challenge that you put forth. I totally agree with with Hindi. I mean, I think that every situation is unique. And I think that here, you know, extreme approaches are, are never good. In the big uh, depression, in the crisis of 1930s, UJA at the time, or Federation at the time, dropped completely. They said, there's no hold barrels. We're going to use all of our endowment. They actually almost went bankrupt in the process. And they they jeopardized all the endeavors that they had going that they proved vital in the next years. I think the question is not really how much you take out from the endowment. The, the question is really a question about what philosophy you have to raising the resources that you need to operate. And those needs need to be validated every year. In other words, you talked about community. Isn't the fundraising a way of democratizing that decision-making, you know, people vote with their feet. So an endowment actually makes you less democratic because you don't need to submit your priorities to the referendum of the donors funding them or not. I'm not talking about 10 big foundations. I'm talking about UJA. I don't know, Hindi, how many many donors you guys have? Thousands of hundreds of thousands. 50,000. Right. So having that campaign every year is, in a way, 
a democratization of the process. I mean, imperfect, of course, but it, but it is a way of... of mm -hmm. well, I, want, I want to come back to the democracy question shortly because, you know, UJA Federation is a complicated example because in 15 years ago, UJA Federation cut their donor role significantly and increased their campaign because the nature of the philanthropic market changed so significantly, which was, you know, when you move to massive donors and individuals with a lot of wealth to say, can an organization raise the money that's a witness to democratic processes is oftentimes really inaccurate, especially if you're held up by a small number of donors. So it actually is, in some ways, it can be anti-democratic. I want to debate that a little bit because it comes to the question of who should be making key decisions right now for our community. But uh -huh. Shira, you, you Shira, earlier you referenced an organization like the Tenement Museum. And my guess is that if an organization like the Tenement Museum is laying off its staff immediately as a result of this, presumably because they've lost earned revenue, then they are probably living month to month. And I'm wondering if you have gotten a sense of, through this process, how many organizations are actually living uh, month to month, hand to mouth, and what story you think that tells about the, the health of, of so many of these institutions in our community. Yeah, I think it's a little bit early still to tell because for most organizations, even in New York, they've probably only been cutting back on programs that they're offering to the public and, you know, working from home and all of these distancing tactics have only been in place for maybe three weeks maximum. So I think that we'll probably see a lot more in the next like two weeks to a month to two months. But I know that I've heard from lots of people, friends who are in their first jobs or second jobs at a nonprofit that they're not really sure whether their jobs will still be there in a few months. And I think it's very clear that organizations like retreat centers or camps, um, especially the ones that are kind of dependent on whatever happens this summer, those ones are seeing a lot of trouble right now. If you can't say for sure that you're going to be able to run your programs over the summer, or even if you're not sure you're going to be able to run your programs over Pesach that you normally run, um, that's a huge amount of money that is just completely taken out of their budget. And um, I think the next couple of months, we'll see the answers to whether those organizations can really survive. So let's assume that there are two, uh, two bodies of organizations that there's almost a clear pathway of philanthropic intervention that could help at this point. One are the human services work. Hindi, you alluded to this before direct social services, medical services, human services, where one of the things that I think we know is coming is federal dollars. And that may not be enough. So the Jewish community can certainly supplement the federal dollars, but it all also do things like bridge loaning on the assumption of federal dollars to help get to that place. A second set of organizations who are in need of philanthropic intervention are things like summer camps, who, as you said, not running camp for a year is devastating for, for actually from the perspective of Jewish identity formation. But from the perspective of the economics, it's going to be very bad because the full-time salaries of the small staff who operate year-round depend on that money. But there, again, a kind of stimulus plan from Jewish philanthropy, you could imagine keeping them afloat because they don't have, they also reduce their amount of expenses. It's bad for all of the counselors who are going to lose jobs over the summer, but that's actually, it feels manageable to me. The harder piece that I can't fully wrap my head around is what does the Jewish community look like 18 months from now, where it's not just what, what were the short-term organizational uh, changes to get through, but where we can expect that the map looks totally different, both because the socioeconomic position of American Jews will have changed, because some organizations will not have been able to weather this, and because, you know, I'll tell you from the perspective of my organization, we are not right now hurting yet because we're dependent much more on philanthropy than we are in earned revenue. But I am basically, what I'm nervous about is not now, but six to 12 months from now, when we have lost six months of engagement, fundraising opportunity, all of that work. And once we re-engage 
a philanthropic donor base that is much more conservative six to 12 months from now than it is right now. Uh, and all the expiring, all the current commitments have, have worn off. So when we come to that piece, what does the Jewish community look like in 18 months? I'm first curious what you all think. What do you think it's going to look like? But I really want to push on who should be making the decisions right now on behalf of that Jewish community? Because I'm very anxious about the whole democracy question. Uh, Hindi, why don't you go ahead? Sure. I do not think your anxiety is well-founded, Yehuda. So I hope that makes you feel better. I think if you walked in to a federation board meeting or committee meeting, you would walk away with an overwhelming feeling of democracy. And what I mean by that is, and I'm not overstating it, but you will see diversity reflected. Is it the full diversity of every single Jewish community in New York? No, we're not there yet. But you will see robust debate taking place around critical needs. Is it more funding to that council in this critical moment around increased need around food delivery and food assistance? And or is it the, the Moisha houses and the Hillels? And I mean, those debates are taking place in the way they have always taken place. There is nothing new, Yehuda, about the process. The same process is there. So if you want to critique the overall, you know, funding process around how late committees make decisions, we can have that debate, but I don't see any change around the process with lay committees representing different communities, having robust conversations about every single dollar, rolling up to the board that represents the broader spectrum. It is rabbis, it is heads of school, different parts of the community are represented. There isn't some small, I feel like you're imagining some small secret room of a few people making funding decisions. The process has not changed in any way. I have no doubt that that's true at UJ Federation of New York, but with two caveats. One is, is there a minimum gift required to become a chair of a committee at UJ Federation of New York? And is that process already democratic? And the third is, the big funding in the Jewish community isn't at UJ Federation of New York. There are multiple major philanthropic entities in the Jewish community who are way larger than well, the Federation's capacity. Let, let, me, let me jump in here because I think, I think there's, there's different dimensions here. And let's go from, from the most complicated to, mo- to the more pragmatic. In the Jewish community, democracy is tricky. And it is tricky because in, in any democratic process is tricky in a community from which you can opt out, right? Like a state, a country, has a democratic process because also has the monopoly of the force, meaning you don't have a choice not to pay taxes. You do have a choice not to donate to UJA. You do have a choice of not going to that show. So when you have a possibility of opting out, democracy in the Jewish community leads to an extreme fragmentation because nobody is willing to be outvoted in a voluntary association. So I want to put this out there and I want to park it because we are, we're all imagining all these democratic processes and they, they just don't work in the Jewish community. You know, there are many Jewish community in which people vote, like in Sweden, in Buenos Aires even, individual Jews go and vote. The result, the most extreme win. In Buenos Aires, a community that is 95% secular, the community is dominated by the ultra-Orthodox because they had the motivation to go and vote. And the secular, they just don't show up and they don't feel committed or obliged in any way by the decision that the central community does. It's not as simple as saying, let's just open it up. Okay, so that's the first thing. Secondly, in terms of the big funders versus small funders, 
More than 80% of the funding in the Jewish community does not come from major funders. There are whole swath of organizations that sustain Jewish life that haven't seen a major funder in their lives. All the synagogues in the country, most of the synagogues in the country, they're supported by the members. Most day schools in the country, the impact they have from major foundations is marginal, if at all. The, the idea that there is a cabal of big funders that is going to decide how this money is going to allocate it is not reflective of how it happens. Now, it would change, for example, and I agree with you on this, if the big foundations would come together and said, we're going to create an emergency fund of a billion dollars. So then, yes, you're going to have a very serious question of how priorities are going to be allocated there from that fund, who's going to make those decisions. But I think that when we think about democratic processes, we need to be very, very mindful of the difficulty of those processes. And it may end up looking something like an iterative process of communal consultations that we need to make as broad as possible. But I don't see a situation when Jews from the street are going to just go and vote on that. I think it's going to take, it's going to need to take the form of some participatory mechanism or some technocracy of looking professionally at needs and then making decisions in some participatory way. It may be true that it's not the kind of big name foundation donors that are supporting those local synagogues and day schools, but I think it is more day schools and more synagogues than you know that are being held up by three or four donors in their community. So they are the no-name big donors. As a result, day schools schools are not democratic institutions, and virtually every day school is one big donor away from going out of business. So even in those contexts, they are democratic in the sense that a lot of people are paying tuition into the pot, but they are as undemocratic in the sense that they are still dependent on a different local version of of big philanthropy. Right, but just just to clarify... What I meant by that is that they are not going to be affected by a decision taken at the national level by a consortium of 10 big national foundations. That's what I meant. You're absolutely right. There is a 90-10 proportion that is a, a problem with fundraising and with philanthropy in this country that is 30 years old. But, but it doesn't, it's not going to be affected by decision taking on the national level. That's what I meant. Yeah, and, and partly what I what I guess I'm struggling with, and I, in my article, called for a major collective mobilization of significant fundraising with a big question of who ultimately decides on how to allocate those dollars when it gets put out there. And I found myself a little bit struggling with, like, kind of by analogy to the Bloomberg campaign, which is you need a massive oligarch to try to repair democracy, even though the very act of the way in which that goes about is deeply anti-democratic. That's the push and pull that I, I feel in a moment like this. Shira, I want to put you on the spot, and I'm sorry to do it in this way, but as our as our resident younger person, uh, and partly because also you've covered Jewish activism among young people uh, in the New York Jewish community and nationally, but I'd love for you to bring that voice in here. What happens to the critical voice, especially in the progressive left, but among young people in general who are, who are also suffering in a different socioeconomic position now, when you watch this kind of big mobilization of philanthropy come about? Is it the solution to our problems or is this exacerbation of the problem? Yeah, I found myself sort of thinking about the irony of this system in which we're very dependent on very, very large donors who then, if the economy sinks, feel more squeezed themselves and maybe don't feel as inclined to give in a big way. The dynamic of that dependency feels kind of emblematic of like the way that I think millennials think about their place in the economy, which is we've never known anything that wasn't unstable. 
So this more feels like a justification for anxiety rather than, you know, the source of all of our anxiety. It's like a, we, we were right that things were not good. Um, I think on the progressive activism front, a lot of people see this not, and not as an opportunity for more activism, but um, again, as like a justification for some of the things that have been proposed um, in recent years. Um, it's not hard to look at the situation and see a need to advocate for healthcare for everybody or to advocate for other kinds of social justice issues like housing and prison reform and all these things. Um, you actually saw it on Sunday, I think, if I can remember what day is what, when Never Again Action, the Jewish coalition for immigrant rights that protests ICE directly, they organized a car protest um, at an ICE facility in New Jersey. That was like a tremendously innovative way to do protests in this new era of social distancing. Um, so I think that those, those movements are actually just more energized than ever um, if they didn't already have enough to motivate them. I just also wanted to push back on the idea of, you know, things already being kind of democratic that I think we already are seeing some examples of um, the organizations who already held more power or who already had more financial or resource advantages that they already are kind of able to do more and better in this moment. Meaning you see it very clearly with day schools, day schools that had more resources were able to very, very quickly migrate online. Public schools had none of that. And the day schools that have less available to them also couldn't necessarily make that switch quite as quickly. And that this crisis kind of further entrenches income inequality and also further entrenches the inequality in the philanthropic system between organizations that are have been doing well for a long time and also the ones that have not been doing well for a long time. I think at the other end of this, there will be sort of a redrawing of the math. I think you'll see interesting partnerships that probably should have happened years ago efficient mergers that make sense for everyone, whether it's because of a joint mission or a shared geography, and those conversations are already underway. What has been most inspiring to me personally, we have incredibly heroic JCC executive directors who, in a moment of laying off many of their staff members, have said, I too am not going to be taking a salary for X amount of time until this issue is resolved at a time when you have Fortune 500 CEOs not doing that very same thing. So I think you see extraordinary moments of leadership. Uh, We also started to call people up for donations, right? We're not doing our big fundraising events. So we started a telephone campaign. These are not mega donors, just sort of regular everyday New Yorkers. Six out of 10 people have said, yes, I want to give. Everyone is facing financial uncertainty, but people are giving, whether it's $18 or $5, whatever they can give. Six out of 10 is a staggering number of people who are saying community needs to help community and I'm stepping up in this time. And we also have major donors who have called us and said, I know there's going to be unprecedented needs. Here's an extra million dollars. I trust you to figure out what those needs are. So people at all levels of the philanthropic sector are standing up in incredibly unprecedented ways. And we also are inundated with phone calls and emails of people saying, how can I volunteer? Which is just, you know, incredible. And I think that um, when you sit in organizations like mine and like many of the ones that you're in, you are deeply afraid and sometimes depressed, but equally inspired and uplifted by the tremendous power of community and the willingness of everyday people to demonstrate extraordinary leadership, courage, and generosity in this moment. For this second segment, I'm still joined by Shira Hano, soon of JTA, 
and now by Professor Avi Helfand, Associate Dean at the Pepperdine Caruso School of Law in California. Avi, you're going to lead our uh, our discussion of the text today. Why don't you take it from here? Sure. Thanks so much for having me here today. Today, what I have for reading is two amicus briefs filed in a recent Supreme Court decision, 2019, about a war memorial cross on government property located in Maryland. Um, the two briefs, one filed by the uh, Jewish war veterans, attack the cross as unconstitutional, unconstitutional because it lacks separation of church and state, but it focused primarily on the message the cross sent to American Jews. By contrast, the National Jewish Commission on Law and Public Affairs focused on the way in which religious representation was important and even religious representations of Christians was important and valuable and really in many ways okay for American Jews as well. I brought these texts today to give us an important window into three things. First, I think they give us an important window in the way in which Jews see and want to represent their Jewishness in America. The second is, I think they demonstrate very different visions of what different Jewish groups think America is, what it represents, and how religious minorities are intended to adapt and incorporate into America. And third, and maybe most importantly, given everything that's going on in the world, I think they give us a sense of what Jewish sacrifice means. By that, I mean um, what it means both as Jewish war veterans to sacrifice in many ways the ultimate sacrifice and how that ought to be represented and recognized in America. And on the flip side, the story in many ways of Jewish adaptation, a willingness to change and tinker with Jewish law itself, um, adapt into a different host culture, is also in a certain way a theological sacrifice. And in certain ways, as a result, this case and the Jewish response to it tells an important story about how Jews sacrifice and how they want that sacrifice recognized, which I think is particularly important given the sacrifices the Jewish community is going through right now. There was a piece that circulated uh, this past week from First Things that made the rounds about the question of whether Christians should sacrifice the communion for the coronavirus. Uh, And it related to a question of uh, effectively religious intimacy in which, uh, you know, the state imposing these regulations is acting in opposition to religion. Uh, And therefore, we as people of faith who believe in Christian sacrifice at a moment like this precisely should be invested in this kind of sacrifice. Or the alternative argument is precisely we have to sacrifice in a moment like this is your own faith commitments uh, for the needs of the Republic. So is that, I mean, does that get at what you think is, um, is at play here? And, and certainly the same dynamic is taking place in terms of Jewish communal affiliations, loyalties, religious services right now. I think so, very much think so. So kind of in the CULPA brief, the National Jewish Commission on Law and Public Affairs, CULPA, I think, you know, when I first read the brief, and it's interesting how circumstances make us read texts very, very differently. I was a little critical. I'm reading this brief where um, Jews show up before the Supreme Court and they decide to tell the Supreme Court that, you know, the cross isn't such a big deal for Jews, notwithstanding what that image has meant for Jews since uh, uh, for thousands of years. And they said, it's not such a big deal. And here are a couple of two votes, a couple of responses where we found kind of exceptions where Jews could wear crosses. And when I first read it, and when I shared it with others, Jewish educators, there's a sense of, wait a minute, that's not really telling the right story. That's not the full story. Um, You're cherry picking. I think when I read it now, um, I feel very, very differently. I see the kind of way in which this brief shows halachic adaptation over time, exceptions in 
various kinds of circumstances, um, willingness to say, you know, sometimes the very things we find objectionable are also okay, um, given their importance to society generally, given their importance to what we think society should be. That kind of, in almost a certain way, mirrors in terms of sacrifice, not in terms of scope. I want to be very careful here. But certainly um, structurally, the idea that Jewish war veterans say, you must recognize our sacrifice to this country. The idea that Jews would show up to the Supreme Court using their traditional texts and say, this is another story of how we sacrifice, how we change to allow and create a certain kind of America, um, I think really does track something very important um, in the way in which Jews live as a religious minority in this country. Part of my concern with the debate that you presented, Avi, uh, and the, the relationship between these two positions is that it feels very cynically easy to reduce this to essentially partisan positions uh, of Jews in America. It's not surprising to me that an Orthodox community that has shifted rightward uh, in the past two decades broadly identifies with the Judeo-Christian narrative that the American right wants to tell about America. And in order to tell a Judeo-Christian narrative, you want to be able to say, yes, we as Jews support the right of Christians to have Christian symbols here in America. Whereas the other side of the story, Jewish war veterans, sounds to me like 20th century uh, kind of democratic uh, mainstream Jewish politics, which say, no, 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 we are very much American, but we are American through our particularism. So I guess I would love to hear both of you reflect on whether how American Jews act politically in this moment, like it's an unfair question, but how much of this is really sincere articulations of what we think Judaism really wants us to do as Americans right now, and how much of it is simply shadowed expressions of partisanship. And I, I think you see it in every aspect of, uh, of American Jewish life right now. Do you think that politician X or Y is handling this crisis well? has very little to do with what they're actually doing, but has a lot to do with, uh, with your predisposition about partisanship. So I'm just curious for us to reflect a little bit on, on Jews as Americans right now and in American democracy for the public performances of our Judaism as relates to the commitments and sacrifices we're making as Americans? Where do you think it's sincere and where do you think it's partisan? So I guess first off, I would say that the partisan nature of the information flow right now and the way that people are consuming and believing different pieces of information about the coronavirus crisis is very troubling. The fact that the numbers kind of show a split between Democrats who believe that the coronavirus is a huge crisis, that it is dangerous, that something needs to be done, and Republicans who often don't believe it. And it's partially about where do you get your news from and who is amplifying messages from the president or messages from scientists and doctors. That I think is very troubling. And I think that may have also played a role in sort of how the information uh, made its way into different parts of the Jewish community, parts of the community that kind of automatically agreed that Doctors are telling us that we need to take these steps. We have to take those steps. And parts of the community that needed the information to be conveyed in a different way in order for that same message to come across. I think there's no question that the way that we're living our Jewish lives right now is that it's not the ideal format at all. Some people have said, and I think this is a lovely thought, that it's kind of refocusing us on the way that we live our Judaism at home. And that's really nice. Um, but it's also not nice for everybody. Like, it's really nice if you live in a family and you have little kids and you can make Pesach decorations and talk about what you're going to do for the Seder. And that's really great. And if you're single and alone and you're going to be home alone for the Seder and not see anybody possibly for months, it doesn't really make this moment any better. And all of the Zoom Seders and all of the Zoom tefillot and all the Zoom discussions and learning are obviously band-aids. It's, it's so hard to see them as 
full replacements of what we had before. And I think that there, there's also an opportunity there. There's an opportunity to increase the accessibility of the Jewish offerings that we have all the time in crisis and not in crisis. And I think that at the same time, when we do all come back together into our normal spaces, there's no question that that's going to be our ideal again. Let me give you the pre-coronavirus read uh, that I had in this case. You know, on the one hand, you have Orthodox institutions who see the reason why they can incorporate their identities into America is because of religious pluralism. And they want their symbols to have the opportunity to stand in public and therefore the opportunity of Jews to represent themselves through their traditional symbols as Jews. And so when it comes to a case with respect to religious displays on government property, they want the opportunity to show their symbols as well. And by the way, this isn't just the Jewish community. The Muslim community split as well. You had briefs on either side of the case for this very reason. Some Muslims wanting the opportunity to focus on religious pluralism and the ability to, whether it's government property or not government property, show their symbols and show their through their traditional symbols themselves as either Jews or Muslims or whatever faith community they're a part of. And on the flip side, you have another segment of the American Jewish community that wants to show itself through its commitment to, you know, the armed forces, the way in which we fought side by side with other Americans and tried to make the world a better place and wants to be recognized as Jews as well and doesn't want the dominant religious community to be able to flatten or eliminate the nature of that religious sacrifice. And, and it was kind of like pluralism versus sacrifice. That's kind of how I used to view this, this case, but I don't think that's right anymore. And, and you know, I, I really take Shira's point about the ways in which learning and adapting and, and responding, responding accurately well to the coronavirus was different in different segments of the American Jewish community. But I feel like we've hit a tipping point now where everybody realizes that there's going to have to be sacrifice. And what's interesting to me, and, and kind of what's changed my view of this, you know, this other brief, is the way in which we're using theological terminology to talk about our sacrifice now. The way in which you're seeing it in responsa, a new response every single day. Can you have a, a, a Zoom Seder? What to do with new pots? Do you have to dip them in a mikvah or not? How, how do all these things work? The fact that the countervailing considerations, it's not just that, you know, oh, we have to capitulate, but they're invested with theological terminology that can overcome other commitments. I feel like there's a way in which sacrifice is being changed into something religious in and of itself. It's not like a battle between America and our values, but that the health and well-being of America generally is itself becoming a theological value. And, and to me, like that tracks this other brief and the way in which we talk about how we've done that over time. And so, you know, your description, Yehuda, of the two different ways to, to view this or think about this, I think in, in, in a certain way, the story is like a yin and yang of the American Jewish community, that we've paid the ultimate sacrifice in terms of our commitment to war. We've sacrificed as a community our lives for America, and we've sacrificed our theology. And for different people, they're prioritized in different ways. And maybe it's not so crazy to say for the Orthodox community, some segments, the ultimate sacrifice is the theology that in some ways is harder than the kind of sacrifice where you give up your life. And I think both of them together all told the material sacrifice and the theological sacrifice tell the story of, you know, American Judaism. It's so interesting. Last week we were talking to Rabbi Daniel Hartman on the podcast 
And we were teasing out some of the differences between American Jewish and Israeli society in response to this. And in particular, that Israeli society has been inducted into a process through wartime of being able to do exactly what you're talking about, of recognize what does it mean for the individual to sacrifice on behalf of the collective. At the same time, I, I've been thinking about it since, I'm reminded of some of the scholarship of our colleague at Hartman, Dr. Ronit Irshai, who has written extensively about how in religious communities in Israel, the language of sacrifice, and in particular in reference to the binding of Isaac, is one of the classic texts that gets used in religious communities to say, you have to subordinate your will to God's will and be willing to sacrifice on behalf of something greater. And she has a powerful insight where she says, uh, overwhelmingly in Israeli responsa, especially pertaining to gender, the rabbis in question use that text to make arguments about the sacrifices that women should make of their own religiosity for the purposes of the collective, for the purposes of God, etc. And what I think Ronit is teasing out, and it goes to the question of sacrifice, is sacrifice, by definition, involves loss. That's part and parcel of this. But decision makers around who should sacrifice are oftentimes gambling with other people's losses. And I've been thinking about this a lot with respect to the same types of response that you're talking about, Avi, of how, to what extent when a rabbi decides you can make this leniency or you can't make that leniency, they have a fidelity to something that is bigger than themselves, which is tradition, but they're oftentimes gambling with and compromising the various losses incurred by the people for whom they're trying to answer that question. I think, Shira, your insight about people who live alone, 28% of Americans live alone, certainly many Jews among that as well, are having these decisions, those of us who live in religious community are having those decisions adjudicated for us by other individuals who are thinking about the notion of what, what should get sacrificed right now, quote unquote, the religion, um, uh, quote, uh, America, uh, individual experience or individual autonomy. It's not that I judge the decision makers for doing it badly. I just think that you're surfacing for us that these religious choices are, the religious choice to sacrifice involves sacrifice, always involves sacrificing something. So it, it has a nobility involved with it, but it also obviously incurs tremendous amount of losses. I don't know that our Jewishness actually makes the situation any different from the way that it's playing out for other people, but I do feel like we've as a community for a long time thought of sacrifice as something that Israeli Jews have to do, that they have to sacrifice for the Klal, that they have to go to bomb shelters, that they have to send their kids to the army. And that that's kind of a new thing for us, but also that this crisis has more than anything else magnified the fact that we are not a community that is living on its own, that we're not actually separated from our neighbors at all, that our choices actually affect everybody around whom we live and that their choices affect us too. And that our fates are tied up in theirs. I think it's interesting to see the amount of creativity and willingness to experiment and to really go to places that no one really expected in some of these responsa and decisions that have been made for various religious communities. And I wonder, you know, when this is over, do we contract and move to a place of like significantly less flexibility because we need to try to preserve what we had before and return to normalcy? And then also I've heard a critique um, as a result of some of these very creative and far-reaching decisions that why couldn't we have this kind of mindset for anyone else? You know, why couldn't we have that mindset when we were thinking about women who are trapped in marriages because their husband won't give them again a religious divorce? Or why can't we have that kind of creative thinking applied to um, LGBT members of our community? Why couldn't we think of doing Zoom Shabbat services for people who are homebound for reasons that aren't social distancing? And I wonder what we'll go back to once when we eventually return to normal, 
will we keep this flexible mindset or will we just return to everything we had before? What, what stays and what goes? I really, I very much agree. That's certainly been the response which here describes. Actually, I was speaking with a rabbi friend of mine last night who, who was saying how once these things are out of the gate, he doesn't see them coming back. I guess what I see optimistically in this moment is that we're learning how to do sacrifice. I think so much of the American Jewish community has not had to sacrifice, either in material ways or in theological ways. And I don't mean particular individuals. I mean, kind of, certainly there's some segments of the American Jewish community that have, but overall as a community, I just don't think our, our muscle memory of sacrifice is particularly good. I was teaching about another, another Supreme Court case with a group of high school students a, a couple of weeks back, yarmulke in the Air Force, uh, Simcha Goldman, who's told he can't wear a yarmulke. And the American Jewish community you know, also filed briefs with the Supreme Court advocating for the right of this person to be able to wear a yarmulke in the military. And as the students, like when the Supreme Court decided against this, this fellow Simcha Goldman said, you can't wear it, the Army's needs are supreme. When they said that, like, why is that a problem? And they all said, well, it's a problem because it means that government's rights can trump religious liberty. And as a result, in the future, when we have this battle between, you know, government and religious liberty, religious liberty might lose. And not a single one of them did it dawn on them that what was being lost was the ability of American Jews to both serve their country and be Jews in the way in which they wanted to be Jews. The idea that they were going to have to sacrifice the ability to sacrifice. It didn't dawn on them because I, I don't think they've ever lived through this idea that we Jews have had to materially with their bodies sacrifice for America. And I think that's something certainly given the economics, everything on the previous segment is going on. I think we're learning very quickly that American Jews are sacrificing their material needs for America. And on the flip side, I think the theology is true also. I, I don't think it's ever dawned on us that we'd have to make sacrifices for theology and what that looks like. But the question really is like, did we hit a tipping point? Like, did, um, you know, halakhic decisors begin to start thinking about ways in which to invest with theological value of the idea that we'll sacrifice our practices when need be for the greater good. That's something that's tried and true in halacha, but it's not something that we've had the emergency and opportunity to do that for recently. I think both on the material side and theological side, I think various segments of the American Jewish community are learning again what sacrifice feels like. And then the big question, Shira's big, big question is, will that translate for the future? Will we have learned something so that we begin to think on a smaller scale, hopefully, what it means for American Jews to sacrifice for the greater good in very different ways. It's a powerful image because, you know, in contrast, you have stories of other parts of Jewish history where the bold decision to undertake by Jews was a decision of martyrdom. That's the flip side of sacrifice to say, I would rather not compromise on my values because you believe that the administration, the malchut, the kingdom is in opposition to your values. So any sacrifice you make on its behalf is a sacrifice of your values. And I think you're right to point out, Avi, that in the American Jewish experience, we have quite a bit of track record already of American Jews having historically been willing to sacrifice on behalf of America. On a personal level, a big part of my family's story is my grandfather's service in World War II. He didn't have a choice, obviously, uh, but it became a big defining narrative for Jews in America. And I wonder, and I want us to continue to think about 
whether it's simply the case that American Jews simply haven't had to ask that question of ourselves for quite some time. What are we willing to sacrifice for America? And what do we then allow for America to stand up? What do we allow America to represent in return? And, um, and the question I think that we started to, to dabble in today is, is the sacrifice that American Jews are going to have to make, is it going to be material? Is it going to be economic? Uh, certainly, as other Americans, that's going to be the case. Um, does that mean enhancing that sacrifice by being willing to give of our own material comfort to make possible uh, for other Americans to be able to survive in this moment. But it also relates to these questions of, uh, of, of religion. Are we willing to sacrifice the religious integrity of our own particular communal choices because we need to support other members of our community? And in doing so, by making those sacrifices, are we actually promoting good public health for Americans at large? Anyway, thank you both to Avi and Shira for being with us here today. And let me thank also our earlier guests on the program, Hindi Pukko and Andres Bakoini. And thanks to all of you for listening to our show. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music courtesy of So-Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening.